Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I've recently started a new business called Bia that helps women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from bad cramps, irregular periods, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Jillian Addo to our show today. Julian is the founder and CEO of Ajwa Beauty, a textured hair care brand. Born in Liberia, Julian and her family relocated to New York in 1982. She started her career in the beauty industry as a teenager, working as a stylist to help her mother pay the bills. She eventually became a thriving salon owner, but serendipitously stumbled into the banking industry where she had a very impressive career in corporate America and eventually closed down her salon. In 2012, as a passion project, she launched her own beauty blog, Bella Kinks, where she began building relationships with the beauty industry while still maintaining her full-time corporate job. After making a ton of connections and establishing partnerships with key companies in the category, she decided to go all in to her side hustle at the time, which was a beauty blog, when she got laid off in banking. During this time, she was inspired by direct-to-consumer companies that were creating new business models and redefining sectors like Glossier and Warby Parker. She noticed a significant lack of innovation in the natural and textured hair sector. She pitched the idea to a few of her connections, but no one seemed to be interested. Never in a million years did Jillian think she'd be the one that would start her brand, but after many rejections, she felt strongly to get the concept out there. In 2017, her natural hair care line, Ajwa Beauty, was born. We talked to Jillian about how she reignited her passion for beauty after years of being in corporate and forgetting about that part of her life. She also gives us a step-by-step approach to how she made the courageous decision to launch her brand without any external funding and a real behind the scenes look of what it's like to start a business from your living room and being super scrappy. Jillian will also share how she got her first customers, created awareness, and how she secured a partnership with Sephora, which was a huge win for her. We also talk about her experience with fundraising with her most recent close at 4 million late last year and how she's thinking about building the business moving forward and so much more. Welcome to the show, Jillian. Thank you, Yasmin. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. My gosh, when I was prepping for this interview and just learning more about you, I am just so impressed by where you've come from, the different zigzags in your journey to really the business that you've built today. So I'm super excited to jump into it. And one topic I'd love to talk about before we go into your storyline is the power of self-belief. I feel like you've had this fundamentally, at least from an outsider's perspective, from a young age, from when you were 14 to different careers you had to then launching your business. I'm curious to get your perspective. If there's any woman listening today who might be thinking, you know what, Julian, I'm not good enough like you to switch careers, or I don't feel like I know enough to start that business, or they have any fear around that. What advice would you tell them when it comes to really believing in themselves and going for it? Wow. That's a heavy question to start with because to be quite honest with you, that's the question I ask myself 
all the time. I don't know where the belief or the, I don't know where the confidence that I have comes from. I have to attribute it to my faith because I don't really have an answer that will make sense in the carnal realm to anyone. I have always operated with a level of self-confidence from since I was a little girl, from as far back as I can remember. I don't know. I think some people are just kind of born with that kind of gusto. I have no reason to be so confident. I grew up in a very rough city with rough surroundings with a single mother. I can attribute it to my mother and her faith. We were in church all week. We went to Sunday church, Tuesday prayer meeting. And honestly, just even like looking at my mother's life and the things that she's been able to accomplish, really, I have more than what she had. You know, my mother came from West Africa as a young woman in her early 20s with two young children, very little education, very little ability to read. And that has never stopped her. Like my mother has accomplished the American dream. She's bought a house. She supports herself. I mean, she's been able to do things that on paper she shouldn't have. So when I look at her, I always think, who am I with all this education, all of this access to limit myself and not be able to go for it? So it has to be a lot of that. I've never been afraid to just try. And I think it's because I've also never been afraid to fail or to look vulnerable in front of people. I realize that people, I mean, like in the time, yeah, they might point fingers, but you know, there's so much happening in the world. It doesn't really, the spotlight doesn't stay on you. Everyone forgets about that thing and they move on. So I've always ran towards a challenge but I've always pivoted quickly if it didn't work out. And I don't know. For me, it's like, why not just try? You know what I mean? You never know what can happen. It can not work, but it could also work. And at the very least, I've been able to get so many life lessons out of things that haven't worked that I'm really addicted to trying because I've grown more out of things that haven't worked than the things that have worked or my highlight moments. I've you know, no one wants to go through adversity, but I've really become the woman that I am and built the business that I built because of all of those hard times. So I don't know how to give people the self-confidence. I just know that nothing works unless you do. <laughs> so that's a really great question. I mean, that was a, a beautiful answer. And I feel like there's so many layers. I have a million questions right there. But what I love about what you said is you've never been afraid to try, but on the flip side, you're not also afraid to fail. You don't really care what people are thinking about you. And I think that can get into people's head a lot. And like you've realized, and probably from a young age, because you've always kind of put yourself out there, you've always been in difficult situations and having to pivot, you realize life goes on that it doesn't really matter in like the grand scheme of things. Like I feel like you have a good perspective that it's such a small little blimp. And, you know, whether it's faith, whether it's also you just kind of going through so many different situations in your life, you just realize life is even bigger than all this that you're doing. And it's beautiful to also hear you say how even through the hardships, 
that is when you've grown the most because I feel like every entrepreneur I've had on this podcast, the ones that I love speaking to that have so much depth have gone through so much life shit that they're able to like grow from it. So this is why I just love your story. And, you know, I actually, you talked about your mom, right? She moved here as a single mom with two young kids, you and your sister, trying to create a better life for all of you guys. Can you paint a picture about what it was like to just show up and land here? I believe you guys were in New York City or in Staten Island. And what did it feel like as a child? Like, did you know the hardship your mom was going through? Like, what was your idea of life at the time? No, of course I didn't know at all. I didn't know until I became an adult. So yeah, we, my mom came to the, to America in 1981. My sister and I, she left us with our grandmother. And in 1982, we came over to join her. And no, I didn't know the hardships. I didn't know what she went through to take care of us. I just remember my mom would leave me with one family and leave my sister with another family. Usually they couldn't take both of us and she would go to work and she was in the health field. So she used to do something they call live in where she would actually go to the people's homes and stay there for extended days. So she'd be gone for three to four days at a time. And I remember like coming home from school and taking the bus to go see her and spend time with her. And I just know my mom to like work so hard. She would always be working to keep a roof over our head and to make sure we always had the best. She would always want us to have the best of everything at her level. And my mom ended up moving to Minnesota in 1998. And I didn't want to move with her because I wanted to stay in New York. And so she left me with the apartment and I took over paying the bills. And I remember the first month that I went to go pay the rent and we lived in New York City Project Housing, subsidized living. So I remember the first month that I went to go pay the rent. Of course, she didn't tell me how much the rent was, but I was working. I was making good money. So I don't think she was worried about it. And when the landlord told me how much the rent was, I think I realized that we were poor. That was like the first time because I'm like, no way we're paying $200 for this one bedroom apartment. Like I thought... I was helping my mom with bills as I started working in the salon. So I thought, like I was giving her good money and I thought our rent was at least five, six hundred bucks back in those days. But I think at that point it dawned on me. You know, of course the surroundings that we live in, it's New York City, was bad growing up. But I don't know. I just didn't realize it until that was kind of like my first aha moment that, wow, we're really not what I thought. (laughs) It sounds stupid, but no, my mom sheltered us from all of that. She doesn't complain. Mm. Like my mom goes to work 365 days a week. She doesn't even take her vacation. Now she does because we're like, you got to take your vacation. But my mom is the typical immigrant story. She's a worker. She goes to work and she would always Through example, she would always make us know that in order to have anything in life, you got to work. Like nothing is handed to you. So she would always say those things. But I really appreciate my mom and her work ethics. What I realized as I became an adult was I didn't know how to not work. (laughs) I didn't know how to take care of myself. Like I literally thought self-care was getting my nails done or buying a new purse All I had was the work ethic that my mom gave me, which was amazing. But as I was building the brand, 
I needed to learn how to balance that. And I needed to relearn. I didn't know because I never saw my mom take care of herself. I didn't know how to rest. Yeah. And resting is super important, especially because this is a long game. Right. And you have to have not only the physical stamina, but the mental stamina Mm. to build a company. And I remember COVID as horrible as it was for a lot of people was really amazing for me because it forced me to rest. Like my business closed, it shut down by the city ordinance of Dallas. I couldn't go to work. And I remember the first two days, okay, what am I going to do? And then, you know, it gave me time to like reflect and to rest and to sleep, actual restful sleep, not just closing my eyes and to work out and to exercise and to eat right. Because building a brand, sometimes you put a lot of those things on the back burner. And because we were self-funded for so long, I completely neglected myself and put everything into the business. So now trying to relearn that was very difficult. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia, and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com, and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com. And check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening, and now let's get back to today's episode. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I, you know, that was actually one of my questions for you. And it's funny because now that I'm reflecting on my life, my parents are also immigrants, worked really hard and similar to you. And we'll we'll get into your story in a bit. I also was in banking, corporate world, and I'm like a worker bee. You tell me to get something done. I'll get it done before anyone else. I'll stay there the longest. Like that was my MO. And since I launched a business, obviously in the beginning, the early days, that mentality is great to get something off the ground. But once you're kind of doing it year over year and you're scaling the business, which I'm sure where you're at, you're realizing like this MO of working so hard every single day without taking care of yourself and rest is not sustainable at all. And similar to you, like I've had to learn to get good sleep and what that feels like. And even, you know, right now it's just, we have to reschedule because I was sick. I haven't been sick in two years. And I'm like, I'm just so humbled to be even not 100%. But anyways, it's it's great to hear how now you're kind of learning to pull back and rest because that is so, so key, especially when you're building a brand for the long term. Because even as an entrepreneur, when you're building the team, you might not be doing the day-to-day every day, but mentally the load is still there and you're dealing with different decisions and you need to be mentally in the right place to like make those right decisions, which... Sounds so simple, but you really, the self-care aspect is huge <laughs> in this. But I want to talk about your first job, right? You mentioned growing up, you guys, you didn't know that you were poor, but you were always wanting to support your mom 
and kind of help the household. So tell me more about your first job and maybe what it really taught you about life or business. Yeah. So my first job was at a salon. I was 14 years old. So around about 12, 12 and a half, I started hanging around with some older girls. I was always with people older than me. And I always had sort of like an older person personality, even though I'm like five feet in stature, I always had a mature-ness about me. So I started hanging around with some older girls and they would do hair in their house and have people come to their house and pay them. And I don't know, I just would always be around and after a while, you know, I would help with putting rollers in or little things. And then I I was in middle school and then I graduated and I was going to high school. And so when we came to the U.S., we came on a visa and my mom ended up getting her her permanent residence status in 1986. Ronald Reagan passed the Immigration Reform Act, which automatically granted her her permanent resident card. And my sister and I were minors, so we should have become permanent resident underneath her. And that didn't happen because of some technicality in how the form was filled out. Whoever helped her didn't put our names at the right spot. So we ended up not having a green card. And then my mom refiled and it took forever. So in high school, my mom had a green card. We were under protective status. So we were in the country legally, but we didn't have a green card. We had like TPS and different things like that. Didn't have work permit yet. And I guess hanging around these girls, they were about two grades higher than me and listening to the conversation and people were talking about college and different things. And I just remember thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do like after high school. Like I don't have a green card, so I can't go to college. We don't have money, so it's not like I could pay for it. So I wasn't really sure what I would do when I got out of high school. I was in the ninth grade, but I was already thinking about that. So I decided to start doing hair. And Vicky, one of the girls that I befriended, I was going to Tottenville High School, which because of my academia, I was always a very smart kid. I got accepted into that school, which was about an hour and 20, 30 minutes away from where I lived. We'd have to take two buses. And then Vicky was going to Ralph McKee Vocational Technical School, which was a vocational school, and she was taking up cosmetology. And so I guess I thought since I had started dabbling into hair at that point, and I was like, really good at it. Like I could look at something Vicky did or someone else did and replicate the style. And I honestly thought, well, maybe I should do this in case I don't have a green card still in three years, I can do hair. So it was a means for me to not linger after high school and not to not get into trouble. And so I took myself out of that high school without my mom's consent because I knew she would be upset. And I enrolled into Ralph McKee Vocational High School, which it's so baffling to me because it seems wow today, but it was actually a pretty brazen move. Like everyone told Ralph, just to paint a picture, inner city vocational high schools are frowned upon, right? It's usually 
Picture me going to a top academia high school and pulling myself and going to a vocational high school, which had the stigma of children that were not going to graduate or go to college. Like it, it was a lot of pregnant teens. Like it was just kind of like that afterthought high school. So even though now it seems like, wow, you did that when I was doing it at the time, it was almost like I was throwing my life away, right? It was a pretty drastic thing for me to do. But I just felt like this, I can go to high school, I can graduate high school with my diploma, and I could get my cosmetology license, and I could work in a salon. So to me, it just made sense. And so I did it. And then while I was working in a high school, a salon opened up in my neighborhood, and I walked in. And long story short, I got the job. So I started McKee Vocational in the 10th grade. And so the curriculum is for you to go all four years of high school, 9, 10, 11, and 12. And since I had missed the year, they ended up giving me credit hours for working in the salon. So by the time I was 17, I took the state board and I passed, and then I continued to work in that salon. So all through high school, when I got out of school at 3.30, I'd stop and I'd go to the salon. And then around about 9, 10, 11 o'clock, I'll be done at the salon. I'll go home and I'll repeat. So I never really had I would say a childhood or a normal childhood. So it was just remarkable to me that even then in my young mind was problem solving, which is really what entrepreneurship is about. It was like, I had a problem. I didn't have a green card. I didn't know what I was going to do after high school. The solution is for me to get a certificate for free and do hair. No, I mean, it's amazing. And also how mature you were at the age 15 in high school, knowing that you got into this incredible academic high school, but you wanted to switch over and go into vocational school at the time, which like you said, it now with your brand, it makes sense. But for so many years, it didn't make sense. But you knew an entrepreneurship mindset is how do you take with the resources that you have and make the best possible situation? And you were thinking about your life and that was the best possible situation. And, you know, I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but, you know, you ended up, you're making so much money in the salon. You graduated, you ended up creating your own salon, you got married, you've kind of quote unquote made it right on paper, all the white picket fence and everything. And then your kind of career took a little bit of a zigzag for a little bit and you ended up working in banking. Tell me more about how that even happened. And because I know that was a little bit serendipitous as well. To be honest, my entire life is serendipitous. Like I said in the beginning, the challenges have been life-changing for me. And I think that that's why I embrace the challenges. And I feel like my challenge muscle is so strong. It definitely has a six-pack because every challenge brought me to a new level. I you know, you, you asked me about confidence in the in the beginning. I don't think without those challenges, I would have made certain decisions. And perhaps God knew that and knows that about me. And so those challenges were created to push me out of my comfort zone. I had my salon in Minnesota. It was doing well. I was about 20. I was making about 70 grand a year for myself as an employee at the salon. No college degree, just graduated high school. Life was good. And then me I was getting married and my fiance, my then fiance lost his job and we needed health insurance. And so I accompanied him 
to an interview and the receptionist, he was in the back for a long time and the reception, me and the receptionist was talking and we struck up a, a good conversation and she was like, you should apply. And I had just finished telling her what I did in my salon and we were talking about that and I'm like, but I'm not looking for a job. And she was like, you should apply. I think you would be good at this. Long story short, I applied. They ended up calling me and not him. And I don't know why, but I accepted the job. And I wasn't sure how I was going to swing that because, again, I had my salon. But I just went ahead and accepted the job and said that I'd figure it out because we needed health insurance. The company was Arcadia Transouth. Never heard of it. Didn't know what it was. It was a customer service job, $12.84 an hour, actually $11.54 an hour. I was making 70 grand, right? So this wasn't a money decision. Yeah. I ended up hiring another girl to help me at the salon and I started the job. Day one, when I started the job, the company became Citigroup. So Citigroup ended up purchasing two smaller auto financing companies in the South, Arcadia, Trans South, and they merged. And I remember going in and seeing the Citigroup signs because you have to remember at this point, I've only been in the salon. I have no corporate work experience. But I remember the feeling because when my mom, when we lived on Staten Island, my mom would bank at Citibank. And I would accompany my mom at Citibank on Saturdays. And I remember my mom going into doing her transactions. And back in the day, the Citibank employees had uniform, navy blue uniforms like flight attendants. But I remember going with my mom. I remember admiring those women and thinking they looked so cool and studious. So then when I saw I'm about to work for Citigroup. I was like, holy shit. I remember calling my mom. I was like, mom, this company is Citigroup. I don't know why, but I was so excited. It was like a Fortune 500 company that I just got in. And I thought I was going in for Arcadia Trans South and I'm going in for Citigroup. So I accepted the job and quickly, I would say after two weeks of working at the job, I convinced my supervisor to allow me to work four 10-hour days to complete my 40 hours. That way I could work at the salon as well. So I literally worked Monday through Saturday for about two years. And then in 2004, I was really excelling at Citigroup. I got like two promotions, got a raise. Citigroup offered me tuition reimbursement. So I was able to go back to school. I had pension, you know, all the things that came with banking in, in those days. And I found it really easy to excel in that type of environment because I'm going from entrepreneurship as really a child to now I'm sitting down at a desk with a headset on answering calls. That's all you want me to do. And everybody else is complaining because remember, I always had that work ethic like my mom. Yeah. Everybody's complaining about everything. They're complaining about the hours. They're complaining about the pay. They're They're complaining about everything. And I'm sitting there And I'm like, we get easy money to just sit here and answer these calls and take people's car payments. And all you guys doing are complaining. I couldn't relate. I was unrelatable, right? I think they saw that type of work ethic in me and I became a supervisor. And then I sold my salon in 2004 and I went into banking full time. So that's kind of the abridged version. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's, it's incredible because you never would have thought your life would have went in that turn. And then you continue to move in different firms and go up the ranks and make even more money. So when you were at that point, did you think 
that this was going to be like your career? You're just going to continue kind of going up the ladder? Or when did you realize there might be something else interesting for you to do, you know, on the side or or as a next thing? Honestly, I was just riding the wave because I did the tuition reimbursement through Citigroup and ended up going to college. I had to work for the company for a year in order to not repay back that money. Right. So my goal was to go to school and to get what I can get out of it. So I hadn't honestly really thought that far. And then in 2006, Citigroup closed its doors in Minnesota and relocated me to Dallas, Texas, and started working for Citigroup in Dallas. And then in 2009, the mortgage meltdown happened. So I ended up getting an opportunity from a peer to become an AVP at Chase and then got a call from Bank of America. I didn't even apply for the job and then went over to Bank of America doing regulatory compliance for the OCC. So life is so interesting. I feel like you just show up and you show up as your best self every day. And even if you work for somebody else, you give your all and the universe, things just happen. I don't know how to explain it. I didn't plan for anything. I just always am trying to do my best where I am at that level. I always want for someone to meet me and for the experience to be positive or fair. (laughs) Sometimes it's not positive, but I think it's fair, right? So I don't know. I always feel like your reputation precedes you and I just always try to do a good job and to be a good employee. I didn't plan for it. And then You know, I started working from home and I learned about the natural hair community in 2012 from a friend who showed me a YouTube video and he knew we were friends from childhood. So he kind of knew my history and he was like, I think you need to be involved in this. You would kill it. You're a hairstylist. You're this, you're that. And he was telling me all these things. And, you know, YouTube was just starting at that time as well. I think in 2011 or 2010 or 2009, YouTube started. And so everything was new. And you had a lot of these young girls like cutting off their relaxed hair and and going back to natural. And something in me, the algorithm on the internet is like you see one and then it starts showing you more and more and more. And so I was watching these YouTube videos and I was like, I want to be a part of this. It like ignited that fire that had been laying dormant in me. And on the side, you know, I was making good money. So I did not intend to leave, to go back into beauty. I just kind of wanted to be involved. I wanted to add my professional stance because at the time there was only regular people with no professional experience in the industry. And the industry was kind of underground. It hadn't gone mainstream yet. So I figured, you know, I have hairstyling background. I have a professional background. I can bring a different voice And that's really all it was. It was fun. It was hobby. I was putting my own money into it. I was having these events and I was paying for the space and I was traveling because I had a work laptop and I can go anywhere with Wi-Fi. So it wasn't like to build a brand. I just wanted to be a part of it. I got laid off in 2013. And so Bella Kinks, my previous company, became my full time. (laughs) Um, And that's really all it was. Oh my God. I actually did not know that part, but you doing this on the side and like seeing this on YouTube, wanting to be part of it. And what I love so much about what you said is you just wanted to be part of something. You were even putting money in it, right? Like even this podcast is something I put my money, my time into, even though my full-time thing is my business. But when you're doing something just out of curiosity and passion, you never know what will happen. So you get laid off, you're doing Bella Kinks, 
full time now. Tell me more about that next phase, because I think you also were contracting. Was it for Sally Beauty as well and like working with different brands? Yeah. So Bella King started off when I was working as a blog. And then I was like, you know what? I'm not a blogger. I'm not the person to tell you what I ate today, tell you everything I use. I was like, okay, that doesn't, it doesn't fit. You know, I tried it on, it didn't fit. And then Bella King's became an event thing. So I was doing natural hair events first in Dallas, then brands would have me come to New York and DC. And I was doing that in my spare time. But then when I got laid off, I recognized a white space. So Bella Kings became a full-time marketing agency where I would support influencers with their relationship with brands. When you connect the dots, it is so amazing to me how God orchestrates life because I would not have been able to do all that I did with Bella Kings. And even now, had I stayed in the salon and the salon has just been my history because I really didn't have the administrative skills. Being in banking, coming from customer service to an AVP, I learned how to do an Excel spreadsheet. I learned how to put a PowerPoint together. I learned so many skills, even leadership skills, how to lead people to review contracts that I just wouldn't have had. So it's kind of like the banking gave me that foundation and now I'm back in beauty. So now I put my beauty knowledge and my administrative and leadership knowledge together and I would create these campaigns for brands when they launched a new product. And then I would negotiate the contracts with influencers and bring them on board for whatever campaign that we were doing, whatever activation we were doing. And Sally Beauty heard about Bella Kinks, and they reached out to me to revive their in-house multicultural brand called Silk Elements. It was a 20-year-old brand. It kind of got lost in the shuffle with all the new, exciting natural hair care brands, and they wanted to give it new life. So they brought me on board to do all of the marketing. Really, they gave me full autonomy. I did all of the digital, all of the social media, helped them with repackaging, consulted on the formulations. And I was like, I really like this. I was behind the scenes. I wasn't a stylist. I wasn't in the chair. So I really liked being able to effectuate change on the back end. And then in 2016, I helped them launch Texture Hair Care brand, Texture ID, which is their more millennial brand. So I think I, doing that, I caught the bug and I was like, I really like this. Again, I still wasn't thinking about starting a brand. 2016 for me was like a pivotal year. I just remember D to C blowing up, right? I think Glossier launched in 2014, but you saw Glossier Millennial Pink. You saw Casper with mattresses. You saw Warby Parker with glasses. You saw Away with luggage, Outdoor Voices with Athleisure. I mean, there were all of these companies that were, the niche itself was around, but it was becoming new. Now these now these people were bringing it to digital, um, making it digital first. And for some reason, I just didn't have the same feeling that the same things were happening within the texture hair care space. Everything looked so antiquated to me, even the packaging, like everyone used the same Boston rounds, like literally every natural hair care brand uses the same packaging, just a different wrapper. And I'm like, there's, there's gotta be something different. Yeah. The the product is amazing, but I don't want to put that on my top shelf. And I started reading Glossier's into the gloss. And I would read all these stories about people's top shelf. And I was thinking, I don't really have a product that for my hair that I would add to my top shelf. Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't things more minimal? Like, why are these amazing formulations for curly hair 
only marketed to black people or so niche that people feel like it's not for them. The rest of the world creates products for everyone. Why are we only creating products for these subset of people? I had so many questions. And then when I would speak to my clients, they really didn't have an answer that satisfied me. So I created a deck that was pretty much Audra Beauty, but the brand didn't have a name. I had my graphic designer do mock-ups. And I first I sent it to the Black-owned brands I was freelancing for. And I was like... I think we're ready for a more elevated texture hair care brand. Here's the deck. I don't want to do it. I didn't have the money, but I didn't also have the desire. I said, I'll be the person behind the scenes. I'll be the marketing. I'll help with everything. You can do it. And everyone loved it that I sent it to, but I don't know. It almost like they had limiting beliefs that people would be attracted to a brand that wasn't as niche. And then I sent it to Sally Beauty after sitting on it for a couple of months and uh, same thing. They loved it. No one acted on it. And maybe no one acted on it because it was supposed to be me that did it. And so after a few months, I just said, you know what? I'm going to do this myself. I think I'm going to do this myself. I wasn't sure how. I had about 20000 25000 saved up from freelancing with Sally Beauty. I wasn't sure how much it was going to cost. I don't know where I was going to find a chemist. I didn't even know where to start. I just went on Google and looked up cosmetic chemists and came up on a few and talked to some people and came up on someone that I liked after a few months. And in my head, I was like, okay, I'll at least make the formulations and I won't tell anybody about it. If it takes two years, if it takes three years, I wasn't sure how long it was going to take. I was just starting. And it ended up taking me 10 months. And in October 2017, Audra Beauty was born in my one-bedroom loft apartment. And really, out of the frustration of the lack of modernization and really diversity when it comes to a Black founder creating a brand. I wanted to lead by example and set an example. One, that you can be small and things can still look very elevated. But two, that we should be able to create brands that can scale and grow big and everyone that should enjoy them. I don't believe in just carving out a niche just for a certain group of people. I think as Black companies, we miss out on scalability and profitability and a whole bunch of things when we do that. And honestly, that's all I wanted to do (laughs) in the beginning. That's incredible. I mean, the fact that you create this pitch deck and you were giving it to Sally and your clients and like, I mean, Sally Beauty is a massive business. And the fact that they didn't bite, it didn't really push you away from the opportunity. Like you knew in your gut that there is something here and no one has done it and like you needed to be the person to do it, which is incredible because I think also there's people who might be listening who are like, I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not that person that had lemonade stands as a kid, you know, whatever stories we tell ourselves, but just hearing your story of like the conviction of seeing an opportunity, not thinking it was going to be you, but you just really wanted to see something out there. And what I love so much about you is you Google, right? Like people always ask me, like, how did you get your first product? I'm in the functional food business. I had no idea what I was doing. I just Googled, called people, asked a thousand and one questions and you figured it out. And I love that you also did it within a year. I think you did like six, six products within a year. We launched six products and the product part was easy for me because again, I had the experience from the salon. I, I had the key ingredients 
that I wanted in the product. I just didn't know how to make it. I had the textures that I wanted, everything. I was a consumer, so I knew what my wash day looked like. We use a shampoo, a treatment, a leave-in conditioner, a gel, and I use an oil daily. So it was going to be five. And I didn't want to just start with like shampoo or stylers because in my head, from a marketing standpoint, I would have to send the customer to another brand (laughs) to finish it off or to start it. So to me, it was like, I want to start with everything. And I threw cream or gel as a different option in there. Some people like cream, some people like gel. So it was very ambitious and kind of honestly stupid (laughs) because I didn't think about it that, oh, six SKUs means I have to now order six different products. But again, I throw myself out there and then I figure it out later. And that's exactly what happened. But to go back to your question earlier, honestly, I always have had an inner conflict that I have been trying to resolve. And I remember as a child, I would ask people questions. And in my culture, children are not supposed to question adults, or you're not supposed to ask too many questions, or difficult questions that no one really thought about or had the answer to. So adults would always shush me. But the lingering questions in my head and in my heart never went away. And questions just heightened. When I was younger, it started out like with, why do certain people get to live like this and other people live like this? What is the difference? I wasn't questioning to be argumentative. I just genuinely wanted to know what was the difference. Because I saw my mom going to work every day. And then I would look at the news because she would watch the news and I would hear the narrative about Black and brown people. But In my neighborhood, although it is a poor neighborhood, it's very middle class and working class. And I saw people get up to go to work every day. And I just wanted to know, why are they going to work every day but still not achieving? Why are certain things not happening? And then in this time, I just wanted to know. I read a lot. I'm a reader. I always have been. And I was reading CW and Beauty Independent. And I was reading, subscribed to all of these different periodicals. And every time this was 2016 was also the explosion of clean beauty. And every time I would read an article, a clean beauty conversation would not include anybody in the niche that I was in. It would always be some skincare brand at Sephora or Ulta. And I just was like, how can textured hair, all these companies, Companies was literally making shea butter, black soap, like can't be cleaner, no preservatives. How are they? And at Target, I was working for Mahisha Dillinger at Curls, started with her, I think, 401k and scaled to 10,000 targets. Like there were all these black founders that just started in their kitchen and, you know, Shea Moisture where Rich started on the streets of Harlem. I would hear all these stories and I would not see them included in those conversations. And I didn't understand why. Mm. I didn't understand why it was only about these few brands. And it's still kind of like that, even though they throw (laughs) a black owned brand in there every now and again. And I just, I just didn't understand why I wanted to know what the difference was, not from a gotcha standpoint, but I just wanted to understand why are entire groups of people and brands in such a bubble? I just didn't understand why, but I thought that maybe we were too niche. Maybe we didn't. I came up with all of these reasons as to why, because the problem that I saw in working with smaller Black-owned brands or conglomerate like Sally Beauty and even others, as I was getting sponsorship from L'Oreal and all these people from my events, is that everybody markets to Black people in a very stereotypical way. Even if you look at like Pantene 
gold collection. The bottle is always gold or brown skin color, I guess, to match our skin color. There's always some black caricature type of woman on it. It always looks a certain way. And the inner conflict with me is why am I a black woman that was raised by a black woman in a predominantly black, predominantly African neighborhood, African setting? I'm a hundred percent a black woman, but I didn't have the same ideology or ideals as the rest of my community. Why am I so different? Why do I not connect with this? Mm. Right. I will go into Sephora and I would buy We Dad and I would buy other things because those brands struck out to me. I just, even now, I just don't have the same outlook or perspective as people around me. I would always be on the other side. And I didn't know why. I didn't mean to be on the other side. I didn't want to be on the other side. I just always was. And so I had that inner conflict that I was always trying to find an answer for. And so Audra Beauty gives me an opportunity to do things the way that I see it, that it should be done in hopes that other founders of color that looks like me know that they can do things in this way as well. And it doesn't have to look this one way because everyone thinks when you market to black or brown people, it looks a certain way, even black or brown people. The gag to me was even when I worked for black owned brands with black founders that had a seat at the table, they just kind of replicated the same thing that mainstream did. Yeah, I saw the color of the founder change. I didn't see the thing change. It was so funny to me because we want that opportunity, but I always felt that even when we had that opportunity, all we did was replicated what was done. The only thing that changed was the founder, in my opinion. And I just didn't understand why. I didn't understand if we had the opportunity to make it look like anything. Why didn't it look completely different? Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) I think people are nervous to make that change. They see these larger companies doing it well in their mind and they're like let's try to be them but you're the one that is going against a grain and you're like let's do this completely differently and people don't have guts to do that you know and those that's why I feel like your brand is just so successful because you had this eye that you wanted to just you know support this audience in a different way and market it in a different way that so many people didn't I think have the guts to do or didn't realize that they were kind of like going behind the conglomerates and doing just kind of what they were doing, thinking they were successful. But I'm curious. So you did these six products. Did you have like a beta test to make sure the products were doing well? Because I feel like from the gate, you guys did incredibly well, even before Sephora. How did you really finalize and test and know like, okay, our products are ready. I think they're going to now be next level for everybody. You know, as a hairstylist, I tested it on friends and family with different textures. Certain things that I was looking for, I wanted the shampoos to be moisturizing. I wanted it to have also, by that time, I was doing events for four years and I was hearing and I was trying products myself and I was hearing whenever I would do an event and we would speak to women at the event, like people stopped shampooing their hair. They were just co-washing. And I was like, you know, I met this one girl that said she hadn't shampooed her hair in five years. All she does is use co-wash because shampoo strips. And shampoo doesn't strip, but the curly hair community equate hair that's completely squeaky clean to stripping. So I kind of knew what the issues were from my experience of having events. And I knew what people were looking for. As a consumer, I knew what I was looking for. And then with my background, so... 
our curl defining cream gave me a really hard time to formulate. That was kind of like the last product, but everything else was was pretty easy for me with our bailment collection. But yeah, I tested it on friends and family. I would have people come over and wash their hair. I would go to people's house and wash their hair. And when I was satisfied with the formula, I would approve it. We had some pretty tough iterations. I definitely give my lab a challenge. Even our oil blend had like 32 iterations. So I was very specific in what I wanted. Even the lab was like, they had had never met someone like me that knew, like I knew the texture, the curl defining gel. I knew the viscosity. Like I didn't know the terminology, but I knew I needed it to have weight to, to define even the kinkiest of hair because Also at that time, all of the diva curl and all the hair care that were really huge, really catered to a more looser curl pattern. And the people with the more tighter textures were left out of advertising, was left out of everything. So I was like, I want to be able for it to work on even the tightest texture. So from a hairstylist perspective, that was easy for me. That was like the formulations never gave me a problem. From the marketing side, I stayed on YouTube and I really delved into marketing and what I wanted the brand to look like. It came on on a YouTube channel called The Future, a guy called Chris Doe. And I would stay for six hours. I would be in bed just watching his podcast. And he interviewed like the designer that did Pinkberry and all of these amazing graphic designers. And I learned graphic design terms and typography and different things. And I was like, I want our logos to look like this. I want it to, I want it to be clean, but big letters. I want the letters to be round and I want the letters to be like the thing. I just try to, to be honest with you, I'm not a salesperson. I suck at it, but I can only like enjoy the brand and talk about it authentically if I truly like it. So I likened everything to Audra Beauty with my life, from my name, Audra, to the color blue. It would be easy for me to tell the story and to tell it really authentically if I drew on my life and experiences than if I made up something or made up a color. So I just really tried to dig deep into who I was and what I would enjoy and inspired by all of the clean beauty. Really, the skincare industry was so advanced to me. I didn't even look at hair care brands. I just kind of looked at what skincare was doing. That really influenced, I think, a lot just because I was watching it so closely and reading. And how did you get it out there? Like the first round of customers, right? When you were just direct to consumer, what was your mode? Was it through word of mouth that kind of propelled you guys? Well, remember, I was doing events under Bella Kings for four years. So people in that realm knew who I was. Yeah. Right. So I, I mean, I wasn't like huge, but I wasn't a nobody. Yeah. So I, I literally just created a website. We launched at my I did a, a trade show called the Bella Kings Expo in Dallas. In 2015, we had like 75 brands, I think like four or five thousand people attend. And so I launched the brand at the Bella. I did a soft launch on the 21st of October. And then we launched a website on the 23rd that Monday. And at the show on the 21st, the JCPenney buyers came to my show and they offered us to be in JCPenney. And I looked at the buyer, her name is Mishan King. And I said, do you know we just launched today? Amazing. I don't got no money. <laughs> and we damn sure ain't ready to be, you know, JCPenney. And she couldn't believe it. And she's 
been a supporter and followed my journey. And so like from day one, we got a retail offer, really. But I launched it at the show and honestly, word of mouth, people bought it. And I was so surprised. Women were buying all six products. Like they weren't buying one or two. People spend so much money on hair care. And I think because of the way it looked, because of the way we rolled out, images were good, videos were good. We really invested in marketing. I had a girl that was a YouTuber. She shot her own videos for YouTube. And I was like, hey, can you shoot my videos? I'll pay you. So Monday through Friday, I'd ship Audra Beauty orders. Saturday and Sunday, she would come over to my loft and we would shoot content. And it was just her content on Audra Beauty. Like if you go to the very beginning. And we, I just kept doing that. And then I would do here on live, on Instagram live, I would invite people to my loft and they would be like, oh, my hair can't do that. And as a hairstylist, again, I'd be like, yes, it can. So I'll have her record me doing hair, you know, washing hair in my kitchen sink, moving them to the window where it's better lighting and doing the hair. And and that's just what we did. I just had my head down doing the work and, you know, a good social media page in those days, the algorithm was good. So, you know, if, if enough people are watching, other people are going to see it. And honestly, I wasn't even thinking about Sephora or retail. I, I didn't have any money. So it was, it's not like I was trying to get a retail deal. I was just doing the work. Yeah. I mean, doing the work every single day, creating great products, putting yourself out there. So tell me how Sephora kind of came into the mix, because as you were saying, you, you guys have been self-funded for such a long time. Getting into Sephora is like, I just see money signs and like investment there. So tell us more about how that opportunity came about. I was completely naive. I knew a little bit, but nowhere near what I know now. 2019, I don't know, was an interesting year. In January 2019, Unilever reached out to us on LinkedIn to possibly do an investment through New Voices Fund. I didn't know anything about venture. So I went on Google, found an article on Y Combinator, learned a little bit about it, had the conversation. And then in February, Sephora reached out to us. So I said that because by February, I was like, what the heck is going on? Jay, like 2019 is going to be a good year. Like two years after you launched or when was this? Two, a year? two years, one okay. and a half because I launched October, 2017. So about a year and a half. So Sephora, someone from Sephora sent an email to my inbox and was like, hey, we love your brand. We'd love to have a chat. And at first I thought it wasn't a real, like I yeah. thought it was spam. Yeah. And I looked at the person's email and I'm like, I sat on it for a couple of days and I was like, is this really from the Sephora? And I responded and we ended up having a conversation three weeks later and with my buyer, Elise Valentine and Jessica Phillips. Jessica is actually the VP now over at Ulta. And I was like, okay, I'll just have a conversation. I always have a conversation. Even now, I never not have a conversation where some founders think maybe it's a waste of my time or I'm too busy. I always have at least a 30-minute conversation so people can kind of get to know me and know who I am. Even if I know I'm not ready, I'll have a conversation. So I went in and I had a conversation with Sephora and they were like, we really love Audra. Can you send us some products? So we sent our six products. We sent a sweatshirt, be kinky, and we packaged it nice. And I would say another three weeks later, they reached out to us and say, hey, we shared your products with some of our team members. We'd love to have a second conversation. And in that conversation, you know, I was just, I think because I didn't intend on being in retail and I knew in the back of my mind I didn't have the money or the team or the information, 
I don't know. I say that, but I always kind of go into everything honest, but I was very honest in a way that probably people shouldn't be with their retailers. And I just told Sephora, pretty much, I don't have no money. (laughs) I said, you know, I have a team of four people. I don't have any money. I'm self-funded. You know, I was completely honest. It was a 30-minute scheduled call, and I think we talked for an hour and a half. And, you know, I just really liked the vulnerability of the conversation. After I was like, oh, I have no money. You could put me on your shelf, but how are you going to support me? I was like, I need support. I said, I have the will and I have the skill. I just don't have the, the cash. And I said, you know, a couple of venture people have reached out and we're entertaining the conversation. But as of now, I don't have any funding. And they said, okay. And then I was like, well, I don't want to have to create like a hundred different lines. Like I don't want to have to keep putting out new products. And doing all of this, I was just like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And everything I was saying, I don't want to do too. They were like, Julian, we don't want you to do that. They were aligned with what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And they were against all of the things that I was saying I didn't want to do. They were like, yeah, we don't want you to do that. And I was like, okay. It's almost like I was looking for reasons. You know that movie, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days? (laughs) I was trying to lose a, a retailer and they were not budging. And I was like, okay, I'll think about it because I still didn't know how we would go into Sephora. And then a couple months later, I think it was about two, three months past, I emailed and I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. Let's do this. And that was August of 2019. And in November of 2019, we signed our agreement with Sephora. And then, of course, we all know what happened in 2020. So we launched in May 2020 and rest is history. And so what changed? I mean, it seems like they obviously still wanted you involved despite you having hesitations of like, okay, I don't have extra money to spend on marketing. I don't have that extra money to like probably create all the products that they need. What shifted and how did you fund that to kind of get it launched six months later in May? I think because they were so open to supporting me, I would not be able to be in retail without Sephora support. You know, they did a lot of the heavy lifting for us to really get us there. Priya and the entire team was completely on board with me and Audra Beauty. They even had me do a Zoom with John Andres, which is the CEO. And I was like, wow, it was just a great relationship from the get-go, not only for the brand, but also for the persons. When I approached Sephora, because I was always a reader in the beauty industry, I kind of knew, like I knew Vernon Francois was in Sephora. I knew Carol's daughter was in Sephora. I knew Madam CJ Walker had a brand in Sephora. I knew Form Beauty was in Sephora and they all didn't work. You know, texture hair and hair care, texture hair specifically never worked in Sephora. And I just felt that if anything worked in Sephora, it would be a brand like Audra Beauty, not only because of the brand or the products, but also because me, the founder, you know, I pretty much had very transparent conversations with Sephora. I said, I'm a former hairstylist. There's no one else that has no one in this industry that has my experience, not only being a hairstylist, because you have brand founders that are hairstylists. But I was in the natural community. I did big events. I did marketing for them. I worked with brands. So it's like I've had I've touched every part of this industry in a way that no other founder has been able to touch. So I was like, for the category, utilize me as a true partner, not just putting our brand on shelf or in store. I said, because especially now we're in 2020, George Floyd era. I said, because honestly, 
the black community, they're a little sensitive, especially when it comes to hair. It's not just hair for us. And if Sephora makes a misstep or say the wrong thing, I'm going to have to respond to that. They're going to hold me accountable to respond to that. So I said, if you have questions, use me. Let's have a conversation about it. How to talk about the brand, how to speak about the hair. Ask me your vulnerable questions, even if they're like stupid. And I promise not to throw you under the bus. I promise not to go to social media and say Sephora. You know what I mean? Like use me as a safe space, as a true partner. Because one thing that we have to realize is people have blind spots. And sometimes people just don't know. You can't know if you don't walk in somebody's shoes. So it's like there needs to be space for each other to come where the person is not don't feel like if they ask a question, you're going to like call them racist or call them whatever, because the question is a genuine question. And that's what I gave to Sephora. So for me, it wasn't just about shelf space because one part that I glazed over is in 2018, we got accepted into the Target Accelerator program. And in that program, Target offers us shelf space and I turned it down because again, I wasn't ready. Right. So Because we had so many retailers, Ulta, all these people come to us. When I am a partner, I want to be a partner. Like, how do we do this and how do we make it successful? Because the other caveat is if Audra Beauty is not successful, that looks bad on Sephora, right? And Black brands in general, everyone's watching to see what Sephora and all these retailers do with all these Black brands and that's your story. So there was a lot writing on it, right? So I think I just offered them a safe space and we build a relationship outside of just the brand. So we have a really great relationship with Sephora for Audra Beauty, but also for Julian Otto. And that meant a lot for me. And yeah, we just, I just always have tried to approach throughout this journey with a level of honesty that I think people are not used to. I knew how to do hair. We made good products. I didn't know shit about retail. I didn't know nothing about nothing. And so I've always just come to people and just said, hey, Yasmin, I don't know how to do this. You know what I mean? I know that I'm smart. And if you tell me or show me, I'm going to do it. So I don't, you know, have any learning issues. But if I haven't done something before, I'm not going to pretend like I know about it. And I think people have been really receptive to that and wanting to explain to me or show me the way. Even when I was raising capital, I would call my investor on the weekends and I'd be like, what's EBITDA? (laughs) You know, of course I Google the definition, but I still don't understand what's this and valuation and what does that mean? And what is 10? Like I would ask all these questions and I think people, I found out that just by asking questions, people are willing to help you. So I've never presented myself as someone that knows. I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And what I don't know, I ask questions. Yeah. And I think that's you're probably one of your biggest superpowers as an entrepreneur because there's no way we can know everything, right? And you have to be willing to say, I don't know what this is. I don't know what EBITDA is. Like, what is it? And you're smart enough to figure it out. You launched a brand from scratch, for God's sake. You can figure out anything with the right people, the right questions. I want to kind of, I know we're coming up on time, but you recently raised $4 million, which is incredible, in September, I believe, right, of last year. I have two questions. So how did you think about your fundraising journey before then, right? Because I know you guys were self-funded. Did you raise a little bit or did you get any kind of help, a loan or anything to kind of get Sephora off the ground? And then I'd love to hear about your $4 million experience and what that was really like for you to go out there and raise money. So we had been getting investors in 2020, 2019. 
Okay. And Unilever was the first investor, but we got circle. I mean, we got all these people reaching out to us, especially when we launched in Sephora, but I wasn't comfortable. I needed money always. Like we never had money, <laughs> but I was also comfortable in not having money and just kind of doing things very scrappy okay. as a founder. And I didn't want to raise money too soon or from the wrong partner yeah. because, again, I always want to be a partner. And, I, and again, I read, right? I read people's stories. I read about funding. I read about the nightmares. And I'm like, okay, I, I need money. And the way that I was thinking about it is to hold off and do a lot of the heavy lifting, learn myself, learn my brand, learn what I want, be really convicted in how I want to move this brand before I bring someone to the fold because I don't want somebody telling me what to do, right? From the standpoint of my vision. Now to build the brand, yes, I'm, there are strengths that I have and there are things that I don't know. So I want my partner to fill in that gaps and to help me scale the brand. But I don't want you to try to force me into going into this retailer and doing that and doing that because that can get messy investors aren't entrepreneurs. I mean, they are, but they're different kind of entrepreneurs. So I really wanted to be confident in my long-term vision for Audra Beauty before I brought someone on. So to go into Sephora, we ended up getting a $100,000 loan. We, when they placed the the first purchase order, we we had that. We had the first purchase order. But what they also wanted was 12 weeks of safety stock. We ain't never had three months of safety stock. So I was like, how will I get this safety stock if it sells out? You know, we were always like things would sell out. It'd be out of stock for a while on our website. While I replenish, we put it back. We were always playing that game. So to get the 12 weeks for Sephora plus our D to C was challenging and I ended up getting a $100,000 loan and then paying the person back on our first purchase order because our first purchase order was rather large. So that's how that happened. But I think I spoke, I think from 2019 to last year, I probably spoke to 30 or more venture people. I'm actually sitting at a venture firm now, but all these people invite me to speak to me and they reach out. Like I don't reach out to anyone. So I just had a lot of conversations and I narrowed it down to three that I really liked that I would want to go with. I felt I always go by my intuition and Ron at Pendulum would always check in with me. You know, I was very tight lipped about things, but he would always it just felt natural. It felt organic. Last year, we had a lot of difficulties with shipping. You know, during the pandemic, we were able to skate by. We didn't really have a lot of issues. All that caught up with us in early 2022. I knew it would be a disaster. So I like rushed to raise money really to be able to handle inventory and all the ingredient raw delays. And there were so many delays and the freight from overseas, we get our packaging from China and it was just ridiculous. And I was like, I don't want to jeopardize my company. So I, I now's the time. And so I reached out to two of them and I said, I'm ready to raise. And I ended up going with Pendulum. It just felt natural. It felt organic. I think we started in May and we closed in August, which I hear is super fast. Yeah. We always maintain good books. We have an accountant. We have a, an attorney. So when they would ask for documents, I just go and pull it. So they were so not surprised, but they were pleasantly surprised at how organized and how small we were because a lot of small companies don't have all these things into play. And we did because, again, I did my homework. So 
Yeah, $4 million. You know, it was interesting. It was a sigh of relief because for the first time I could give myself a salary and get my personal life back in order. But it was also heavy because it's like, wow, now I have to, ten, you know, make a return on these people's investment. This is this is not for play. I'm entering into playtime is over. <laughs> and then also the psychological impacts that come with four million dollars. Like no one in my family has ever had four million dollars. I didn't even know. I didn't even have anyone to go to to talk about there is four extra million dollars in my checking account right now. What do I do with that? Yeah, you know, yeah. Does that money sit in, you know, I had simple questions. Do $4 million sit in a checking account? Do I open a wealth management? Like, because it's only insured up to 250000 Because I have banking background, I, I know the banking laws. So it's like, do I just keep the money? You know, like, what do I do with this? Yeah. How do I spend it? How do I make sure to make a return on investment? How do I make it for the 24 months of runway that I, that I say that I need before I go raise again? Because- Every time you raise, you're chipping away your equity. So it was a lot. Everyone was congratulating me and my publicist. We got really great coverage and Forbes and everything. And it was like start. It was amazing. But it was also very heavy on me. I honestly took two weeks to just kind of like I paid some bills that we had. But then I did nothing for two weeks and I just kind of sat on it. And then just kind of went through the motions myself for me to personally get to the level of where I need to take the brand, right? Mm-hmm. Now we need to make 15, 20 million, 25 million. So it was like, how do I, from a mindset perspective, how do I shift from scrappy yeah. scarcity? I mean, we still are scrappy and we still want to be scrappy. You don't want to be wasteful, but now I could do things that I couldn't do before. So how do I get from that point to now growth mode? And I'm still working on it, to be honest, but I was able to recognize that. I even had a conversation with my investor. I was like, how do you psychologically handle this? Like, what do you do? So yeah. <laughs> no, it that resonates a lot. I mean, we haven't raised money. We're self-funded now. And like you were kind of saying, it's kind of a different ball game when you're self-funded and you're doing well and it's growing and people are buying from you. But like to take on that money and raise a few million and everything you're saying would make sense. I would probably feel that way. Like you wouldn't know it's just a different ball game. Like you need to become a different person to kind of take the business to a different level and kind of do things differently, right? Then versus what you've been doing for the past four or five years. And, and not that it wasn't doing well, it was doing great, but it's just like a different mentality. So I could imagine that being just a lot of change. Yeah. And it's interesting. We had somebody else on the podcast who was raising money for Havenly. And she's like, yeah, I raised money. And like, I'm getting all these congratulatory texts. And I'm thinking to myself, like, thanks everyone. Like, this is great, but this means I don't have money. Like I'm not profitable. I need the money. Now I have to figure it out, you know? And it it just made me think there's just so many layers that go into raising money, like beautiful things, you know, now that you can get a salary, you can breathe a little bit, but it comes with different aspects. Particularly from people who don't come from money, right? I mean, the business made money, but I never had, you do your tax return and you're like, oh, we made this amount a year, but you don't really see that sitting down, (laughs) right? It's like when you work and you're like, oh, I made a hundred thousand, but I got like 2000 in my checking account. Like we made money, you know, I've seen those kind of numbers, but we never had that because you're putting everything back into the business. And as money's coming, you're spending, you're doing payroll, you're paying that, you know, you, you just, it's like sometimes I just pay people, yeah. but I I never had that type of money to play with. And especially for founders, 
that don't come from money and don't have anyone to talk to that has money and everyone think that you should be grateful. The other thing is you talk to people around you that don't understand and not in your shoes and they're like thinking that you should be grateful for that and you are grateful for that, but there's still a sense of responsibility and a heaviness that comes with being responsible for that type of money and honestly being responsible for people's lives. Like I, I'm an employer with people with families and that are depending on me to like run payroll. There's definitely a heaviness that comes with that. And it's so interesting. I was talking to my investor and I was like, I don't know if it's the responsibility of the, I don't know whose responsibility it is, but I think that founders should definitely go have some sort of counseling session, maybe during raise or right after raise, because I don't know. I'm I'm so glad that I'm in tune with who I am and my feelings, and I'm able to like discern that I need this amount of time and space because of how I was feeling, and I give myself that space. But there's definitely a heaviness that that comes along with that. Everything is about numbers and you know return and growth, and every month you have to be growing. And if you're not growing, something's wrong and you got to answer to all these people. And it's just, it's just a different, it's really good, but it's also like really annoying a little yeah. bit. <laughs> you know, you need X amount of runway, you know, you have this amount of money in your account, but it's not enough because you only, it's a lot. So, but it's good. My partners are really great. I'm really, I think I made the right decision. I, I really do. I think like when my back is against the wall, I think the difference for me and Audra Beauty is my superpower is that I make really good decisions. I think Sephora was a really great decision as a retailer to to start off with. I think my investors were a really good decision. And not only because of good times, but when I've been in like tough, challenging moments with those people, watching the way they react towards me and, and the response has reassured me that I, ma- I made really good decisions to have those people as my partners. So I'm really grateful. Yeah. Yeah. And we hear that. I mean, at least all the women, you know, I've interviewed 160 women and maybe 50% have raised money and they've mentioned like, you know, you're, we have the right partners when you've gone through just a hard year or a hardship and they, they have your back. Right. And I think that's the biggest thing that you would want from any kind of a partner. And, you know, I'm glad to at least hear that. And we'll have to do a part two in the future one day, once you kind of figure out this next phase, but I know, you know, you're showing so many people what's possible and you're doing the work for just so many other incredible brands who are looking up to you and changing people's lives. Thank you, Jillian, for joining us today and sharing your journey and just being such an awesome role model to so many. Thank you. I appreciate your time and wanting to hear my story. And thank you for all the research that you did. It's super heartwarming to hear people are reading and Hearing what you have to say, I am so amazed that anybody's interested in hearing my story. I don't think I'm ever going to get used to this. So thank you for the work that you do. It's definitely important that the work that you're doing to get our stories out there. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. 
I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.